There's no business like Tro, business like no business we know. Everything about the show's appealing. Listen and enjoy this blissful feeling. Nowhere could you get so much information than if you were standing on Miracle Mile. There's no business like Tro, business. Now, on to our show. And welcome our host, a man with a face for radio, Mark Trowbridge. Well, we're back again for Trowbiz. Thanks to all of you who continue to make time to listen to our little Chambers podcast. I can't get enough of that theme song. And every time I talk to Sarah Artacona, I make her sing it with me. And let me tell you, there's nothing that a woman in quarantine loves more than a little duet. We are super excited today to be joined by Dr. Julio Frank, the CEO and president of the University of Miami and the interim CEO of UHealth. We expect uh, a robust conversation, not only about what's in store for the U, but what's happening on the research front. But as we always like to do with our podcast, we begin with our headlines, or on our TroBiz podcast, we call them TroLines. So we start at the national level, and of course, this week our president talked about the fact that we had prevailed when it came to testing. And while testing has certainly become more of the discussion and more of the norm, it is clear to me each and every day that people will be more comfortable cruising, flying, shopping, and dining out when testing is something that is readily available, both on the COVID front and on the antibody front. And uh, I think Dr. Frank will talk with us in detail about some of the research work they're doing in conjunction with the NIH. At the state level, well, it's all about the reopening. Most of the rest of Florida, 64 out of 67 counties, opened a little more than 10 days ago. And so we here in Miami-Dade, who are awaiting our green light, hopefully in the next few days, have clearly understood some of the challenges that are happening in other communities, especially large cities. So encouraging folks to remember to take their mask and have it on them at all times, continue to practice social distancing, and just make good decisions. If you're not feeling well, stay home. At the regional level, well, we're the three counties here in South Florida that are waiting for the green light. Palm Beach County got that a couple of days ago. And so I think a lot of Miami Dadians and Browardites are running up there to get their hair cut. Now, I know you can't see me, but I'm on day 55 today of no haircut and I have a mustache for the ages. I'm doing a little beard trimming, but that's mostly because it's gray. And I like to tell my online friends I'm only 37. At the county level, well, the mayor is very active in keeping us engaged and working with his fellow mayors, including our own mayor, Raul Baldesfali, to talk very openly about reopening plans. I'm mostly concerned about what's going to happen with our hotels, our restaurants, our retail. They have been most adversely affected, as you can imagine, having been closed in many cases since mid-March. Some of our restaurants were able to pivot. They've done a great job. But even the part of their business that was always takeout and delivery was rather small. And I'm concerned that only opening at 25% is not going to be enough. So at the local level, the conversation really has to be about being creative. And so we have been pushing on our elected officials and through the business recovery task force to allow more outdoor seating, outdoor dining, maybe even some road closures to give them even more space to socially distance. But I think when you look at what's happening nationally, we also have to be engaged in the testing game. City of Coral Gables has that for residents, but we're asking them to consider making that available to businesses, even if there is a modest cost. At the end of the day, I again think people will be most comfortable shopping, dining out, going on vacation, flying again when there is a vaccine, but that's gonna take a while. So we all need to practice the best habits possible in order for us to uh, come together uh, and be socially connected again. Those are the tro lines for this week. And I am really honored now to welcome our special guest, Dr. Julio Frank. He became the sixth president of the University of Miami in August of 2015. He holds academic appointments as professor of public health sciences at the Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine and as a professor of health sector management and policy at the business school. 
He is currently serving as the interim CEO of UHealth in addition to his duties as president of the University of Miami. Prior to joining the university, he was the dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the T.N.G. Angelopoulos Professor of Public Health and International Development, a joint appointment with the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He has been the Minister of Health of Mexico, serving in that role from 2000 to 2006. He pursued at that time an agenda that was quite ambitious to reform the nation's health care system and introduced a program of comprehensive universal insurance. He has lived through four pandemics and has been a leading voice in the response to COVID-19. And we are thrilled to welcome him today as he helps us lead us out of this fourth pandemic into recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Julio Frank. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, and good morning to everyone. I am delighted to join the uh, Carl Gables uh, Chamber uh, this morning for I, I, because this will be a very engaging conversation. Uh, I'm going to give you some brief remarks, and then I'm looking forward more to a dialogue. Uh, now, <laughs> during difficult times, it's really through collaboration that we make progress, and, and I really appreciate the partnership with, with our local Chamber of Commerce uh, it's been a long-standing partnership, both the city of Coral Gables and the University of Miami. We're both celebrating our 95th anniversary this year, and we're all looking forward to our centennial. We will get through this, and we will be there to celebrate 100 years. And it's really always been a pleasure to interact so closely with, with our local Chamber of Commerce. So thank you for this opportunity. Now, uh, the, the impact that COVID-19 has had and, and will continue to have on our community and indeed on the global economy is really unprecedented. Uh, but even in the face of, uh, of uh, such disruption, we are fulfilling at the University of Miami our mission of teaching, carrying out research, innovating, and providing service mostly through healthcare. Uh, we should be all encouraged by the fact that just this week, our students, in fact, yesterday to be precise, our students were uh, able to success, successfully finish their semester. Uh, as, as I'm sure all of you know, we had to migrate all of our courses to an online uh, platform. And we also have postponed our formal commencement ceremony to, till December. Still, when, when it, uh, at some point of, uh, during this crisis, it became clear, as I said in a message to the community, that we would need to replace predictability, which is what we have usually in the academic year, predictability, we would need to replace that with adaptability. And in, in that effort, I have to say that everyone at the University of Miami, our students, our faculty and the staff, had really stepped up with, uh, with extraordinary efforts and a great, uh, great sense of teamwork. Beyond adapting to a new reality for, for teaching, this online world where, where we, we just finished our semester on, uh, we are also a comprehensive research university and we also have an academic health system. So in point of fact, we have three roles to play in the face of COVID-19 for our community. First, of course, is we, we have about 18,000 students, about 17,000 employees. So there is this community of 35,000 people, and we need to make sure that they and their loved ones are uh, safe and are healthy. Uh, while we continue our mission, and continuing our mission will be critical also for the reactivation of the economy. The university is an anchor institution. We're one with the second largest nonprofit employer in Miami-Dade County. Uh, and to the extent that we can keep our own members of our community, not just healthy, but able to continue to work and reopen gradually, I'll say a little bit more about that. We also have a positive economic benefit for the larger community of where we are part. So that's our first role. The second role, because we are, uh, uh, an, we are a university with an academic health system, U Health, uh, that we represent the only academic health system in all of South Florida. And therefore, we have a very important role to play in providing especially the, the high specialty care for the very sick patients suffering from this disease, COVID-19. And then thirdly, because we are a comprehensive research university, we are also at, at the front lines, not just of patient care, 
but of all the, the research that has to be carried out to develop the tools that we will need to actually um, overcome this, this pandemic. Um, and, 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 and that's very important. We, as we speak, uh, our scientists are really hard at work developing those tools, and those tools are fundamentally tests, medicines, and vaccines. And on all three fronts, we are there. Now, uh, that by way of introduction, what we're doing, I'll just uh, finish by saying the COVID-19 pandemic continues to be a fluid situation. Uh, uncertainty continues to loom large. Remember, every time there's a new, a new pathogen, a new virus that creates a pandemic, by definition, we, we have uncertainty. It's the characteristic of this kind of emergencies. However, we are learning more and more and more as, as the pandemic progresses. And we're, we're developing more effective mechanisms to, to combat it every day. Uh, today, uh, the University of Miami would have been expected in that predictability of our annual cycle. Today, we would have had our commencement ceremonies today, tomorrow, and Saturday. Right. Instead, our, our faculty, our students, most, most importantly, our students who will be graduating, uh, our faculty, our staff, our alumni, uh, are receiving today an end-of-year message from me. Uh, uh, and as I tell them there, we must work very hard, not just to adapt to a new normal. Really, our task is to build a better normal together as we progress through the pandemic and when we see ourselves past the pandemic. It's, it's not just a new normal, it's a better normal that we need to be uh, focused on. I'm really grateful to the Chamber for hosting me again. I thank you very much. And I look forward to answering as many questions as, as I can. And of course, hearing your perspective on how best uh, we should all move forward. Thank you very much. Well, and thank you. I think those are perfect table setting remarks to kind of move us through uh, our conversation. So I'll start with the fact that you know, in your background, you have worked with some incredible leaders in our community, and you worked with Bill and Melinda Gates, and they together have called COVID-19 a once-in-a-century pandemic. Now, you've lived through four now, which when I tell people that, they scratch their head, but at least through three of those, you have recovered and been an instrumental part in that recovery, and here we are on the precipice, hopefully, of that what are your thoughts as we are uh, in this crisis, in this moment? Yes, um, you know, um, public health is my field, and, and I have worked both nationally as Secretary of Health of, uh, of Mexico, but also internationally. So, uh, so it, it is true. I mean, I have, I have, I, I have not just witnessed, but participating in some decision-making uh, position uh, through four of those uh, avian flu. Uh, swine flu, uh, SARS, uh, and MERS. And of course, the fourth is an ongoing pandemic, which is called AIDS. Uh, that still has a, a the declaration of pandemic, but that's a, you know been going on for 40 years. But these more acute ones, um, uh, that's where, you know, it, it's been uh, actually very challenging, and I've learned a lot. However, I have to tell you, um, uh, I agree with that statement by, by Bill and Melinda Gates. I also worked at their foundation for two years. Um, uh, this is a one in a century. The, the, the breadth and the depth of the impact is unlike anything I have seen before. I think part of that is due to the fact that we, that this virus has a very, um, uh, has intrinsically a combination of characteristics that make it a huge challenge. It is very, very contagious. So much more contagious than the influenza, which are two of, of those pandemics, including the most recent real pandemic, which was the 2009 uh, swine influenza, the H1N1. Much more contagious. The other characteristic it has is that people who are healthy or have only mild symptoms or even people who are gonna be sick, but still have not developed the symptoms. So people who are asymptomatic or with mild symptoms can transmit it and can transmit it at a very efficient way. For example, for SARS, which is another coronavirus, that's not the case. Only people who are very sick can transmit it. So by then they're, they're actually secluded in a hospital and you don't have this widespread uh, transmission. 
And that is what, what makes this particular uh, strain of coronavirus so complex, its, its characteristics. Uh, we also live in more dense urban settings. There's more travel. But I think the main, the main element that makes this unprecedented is, is the intrinsic attributes of, of, the, of the virus. So you talked about the impact that your team has between the faculty, staff, personnel, and of course, students. I don't know if people think about what an enormous cross-section of people that is, but also large number of folks. And so I know you've been staying in contact, but you talk about building a better normal. How have you been able to stay very engaged with them even when they're working remotely and your students for the most part have gone home to their home communities? Yeah, well, you know, when you have uncertainty in an emergency, you have two tools. I call them the two C's. One is contingency planning, which means you develop every scenario possible and, 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 and you prepare for each scenario, even the worst case scenario that sometimes we like not even to think about it. But you got to, in a very disciplined, systematic way, say, what if all of these things happen? What would we do? And then you create that sort of contingent plans. Now, we in South Florida are very good at that because we do it with hurricanes every year. We're doing contingency planning. Obviously, the difference is that with a hurricane, you have a clear beginning, you have a middle, and you have a clear end. And with a pandemic, that is not as clear cut. We, we, we're not even sure what the beginning was, and we don't know where the end is. Uh, and there are events that would make, that would totally change that ending. For example, when we have a vaccine, I don't say if, because I'm very confident that we will, but when exactly we, we have a vaccine will determine what's the end. So it's a little bit more fluid and that level of uncertainty is higher. So even more, we need that first C. But the second C, which applies anytime we have uncertainty, is good communication. Because even though the emergency is fraught with, with uncertainty, and again, here, this is a much higher level of uncertainty that we would ever have with a hurricane. Um, we're really learning. This is the first time humans have been in touch with this particular virus. So even though we have lessons we can extrapolate from previous experiences, we're not sure exactly how it's going to evolve. But people, what they want is certainty. When will, when will we be hit? How bad is it going to be? When will it all be over? And the only way you deal with, with that uncertainty and the anxiety that it creates is through communication that's clear, concise, consistent, and credible. And, and this is what, I, what we've been doing. We developed, uh, I, I learned this in, in, in my previous experience dealing with pandemics, as important as the public health measures are, is to have a communications plan. So what I've done is I've, I've stayed in very close touch with the community using both written messages, but actually what works the best are, are video messages. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I, 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 I sent a, a few of those, as I said before today, it's an end of academic year message going to, to the whole community. And then we've also kept very fluid, um, more one-on-one -on -one communication. There's a hotline, there's a, all, all kinds of channels uh, to, for, for specific faculty or students who, or staff members who have a particular problem, how, how do they address it? But it's communication that's the key here. So you talk about the two C's, and so let's start with contingency because even someone as, you know, engaged in public health, both on the, you know, medical side and the policy sides and the funding sides, this has to be one of those scenarios that even in your wildest dreams, you can't imagine it, but you were one of the very early folks, even with inside your institution, who said, we need to be prepared. And going all the way back to January, when we were really talking about China, Wuhan province, but you saw something, I think, that others didn't. And so that maybe gave you a head start. But uh, talk a little bit about that, because I've been very impressed with hearing that and, and from members of your team, that you were way ahead of other conversations. Yeah, you know, for those of us in the global public health community, the question has never been if there's going to be another pandemic, but when. And that question, by the way, it's not going to go away with, the, with this pandemic. There'll be future pandemics. So the question is when. And what we have seen over the last uh, couple of decades, 
is a consistent pattern um, uh, of so-called zoonosis. These are diseases that affect animals and the uh, virus, it's, it's most, most commonly viruses that cause the disease, jump the species barrier and uh, affect humans. Um, that's step one. We have had several of those. Many of the avian flus made that jump. Step two is when there starts to be human to human transmission. When you get to stage two, and we got there early in January, any one of us who's trained in this field knows that that's the time to really start getting ready. Because once there's human to human transmission, especially in respiratory viruses, which transmit very easily, it's, think of, of uh, Ebola, which is not a respiratory. You need intimate contact to catch Ebola. Then when, if you get it, it's a horrible disease, but much more lethal than the coronavirus, but it's very hard to get it. Here, what, with any respiratory, whether it's influenza or this coronavirus, uh, the transmissibility is very, very high once, once you start having person to person. So that's when, when indeed we started getting ready. And I have to, to say, I know it seems like this, it's been ages, but the speed at which the scientists have been able to uncover realities about this is just amazing. I mean, you know, consider that the, the first cases probably emerged sometime in December. Unfortunately, China did, did delay in reporting it. Not as bad as with SARS, I have to say. But, um, but, we, but by early, early days of January, the Chinese had actually uh, deciphered the genome of this particular virus and had made it public. And that's what all the groups are working on, vaccines and drugs are working on. That was within days of the first report. Then uh, we, the virus was quickly characterized. We quickly were able to establish that there was human-to-human transmission. And, and so the, 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 it's, I know it sounds like, we're, like it's been a lot of time, but in, in comparison with previous pandemics, just the, the pace at which we get to figure out what is causing things is, has been much more quicker than before. The difference, as I said before, is that this one in particular happens to be a very challenging virus because of the characteristics that I mentioned before. So anyway, in our case, once I heard the news uh, on the WHO, the World Health Organization website, person-to-person transmission, <laughs> I said, this is the time to get, to get ready. So uh, we assembled the emergency management team. I have to tell you, I, I came here in 2015, and I found, uh, having been in this field of managing different emergencies, the team I found already at the U is, is one of the best I have ever worked with. Um, it, really an excellent professional team. Again, very much um, a lot of experience with, with yearly hurricane preparations. We were tested with Irma in 2017. We were tested again with Dorian last year. Fortunately, we were spared that one. But it's just incredibly incredible how good they are. So I convened that team, and this time not for a hurricane, but for a pandemic. And we started actually having regular meetings since the end of January. I also, knowing of our second role, uh, alerted the people at U-Health to start uh, making sure we had enough stockpiles of personal, personal protective equipment, uh, diagnostic tests, which has been the big bottleneck, not, not just for us, for everyone, and, uh, and, and drugs. We, we, we knew that even though there's, we're only testing now drugs that are specific, there's a lot of other medicines that are needed to support critically ill, Ill uh, patients. Uh, medicines and other in, uh, equipment like ventilators. So you health really was ahead of the curve in, uh, in stockpiling for those critical inputs uh, for, for when, you know, when the peak in demand started occurring. So yeah, that, that was part of, um, of the reason why we were able to, to get ready uh, a little bit ahead of the curve, just because I knew that once that uh, person-to-person transmission had been established, it was, it was just a matter of a few weeks before it would arrive here. So, you know, they talk about the right leader at the right time. I think that couldn't be more appropriate than just what you've shared with us. And, and you talk about the role of the University of Miami in our community, and you rightly focus on the 
academic medicine piece. That is something that we couldn't be more proud to have in our community. But also the fact that from day one and maybe even before, your research folks were very engaged in this conversation. And there's obviously some intersection there, but I'm sure folks who are listening today want to hear a little bit about um, the progress there and the fact that even that has occurred in lightning speed in terms of typically how things are uh, you know, done in a laboratory and FDA and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of the, of the team of researchers at the university. On the life sciences side, it's interesting, you know, and, and it's a reminder I, in my message today to the students on, on this last year, last day of the academic year, I, did, I do tell them that one of the big lessons here is the need to, to continue to invest in science. For example, take, take our group that was that's working on a, on a very fast, accurate test, almost it could be done at home or in, or in, a, in a doctor's office. Uh, Dr. Silvia Donner heads that group. She, she started working on tests for AIDS. And then when Zika affected us, remember, <laughs> just a couple of years ago, she was able to convert that platform for, for test development that she had originally used for AIDS. These are all viral diseases, different viruses, but some of the techniques are similar. So you build a platform. And so she was quickly then able to take the Zika platform and start applying it to the specificities of this coronavirus, especially now that we know, as I was saying before, the genome of the virus. And that kind of platform capability is critical, but we need to build that at a, at a much larger scale. Um, so she's been able to work on a specific test, uh, you know, joining the search for that, uh, and, and that's been really, really amazing. Then uh, the second big uh, tool we have is uh, drugs. Even if they don't cure the disease, uh, drugs that can really um, improve, the, especially the symptoms in the most uh, in, the, in the people who are most sick with the disease. Uh, and even, even that short of a cure is very valuable because then you reduce the pressure on hospitals. If you can, for example, shorten like, length of stay, you immediately re- uh, release the pressure and, and avoid scenes like what we saw in New York City or in Italy, which are very dramatic and which fortunately we have not had here in South, in South Florida. But, but drugs are very important. We're engaged in several of the clinical trials. And then other therapies. Um, for example, um, we have gotten funding for uh, stem cell-based therapy. Dr. Camilo Ricordi is, is leading that. And again, these are platforms using stem cells for other diseases. He's been doing mostly work on diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And you can rapidly convert those platforms for the pathogen that you're now needing to address in in an urgent situation. The third is uh, vaccines. And again, there we have another group at the Miller School of Medicine working on a pretty innovative approach to vaccines. In addition to what they're doing internally, one of the brightest spots of this uh, very difficult times we're going through is that I'm, I'm seeing a level of scientific cooperation that I have never seen in my life before. I mean, very quickly, competition uh, for primacy and who gets to publish first or for intellectual property, all of that has been thrown out the window. And you have literally thousands of of scientists in academia, in government, in industry, all cooperating along those three fronts of tests, vaccines, and and treatments. And and that's why I'm so optimistic that we're going to very quickly, we're already seeing new tests coming online, then drugs. Uh, there's, there's several that are, look very promising, and eventually a vaccine, which will be the, the ultimate uh, solution to this, to this uh, pandemic. That's heartening to hear because, as we all know, there's always sort of a, a race to the finish line at times. Um, a question for you from our audience that I think is relevant here is to talk a little bit more about testing in terms of capacity. Um, and obviously, you shared a little bit about what UM is doing in both the testing front and also maybe on the antibodies uh, front. But obviously, it's going to be critical for us to being able to maybe be socially and physically together again. Yes, and as I'm sure everyone on this um, 
webinar has, has seen, because it's been explained a thousand times, uh, there are two types of tests, the ones that test for the virus, it's a diagnostic test, and then the one that tests for antibodies, which gives you an approximation of how many people have been exposed, well, well actually not an approximation, it tells you how many people have been exposed, and it gives us an approximation of who might be immune. That's something we're still learning. But it is very important because at least we know, you know, what's the prevalence of that prevalence of that exposure? Does it follow a particular geographic pattern? Are there some age groups that are more affected, some ethnic groups? It gives us an understanding. So on the antibody tests, um, I'm very proud that the University of Miami is doing in partnership with Miami-Dade County, the first large-scale community study to measure the prevalence of those antibodies. Uh, it's, a, it's, 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 our, it's a sampling scheme uh, where this group led by Dr. Erin Kovitz of the Miller School, and she's also our vice provost for, for research uh, for the whole university. Uh, they're, they're taking samples and that is allowing us to understand what is the extent of exposure to the virus because the first type of test, which is the diagnostic test, that's the one that's been, that's taken longer uh, to develop. And that, that, I mean, part of the challenge we're facing is that there were delays in deploying those tests at the scale needed at the beginning. But those tests are going to be crucial as we move forward to reopening. Because what we want to do with the reopening is, is go back to the, the way we usually work in public health. It's not by asking everyone to go into lockdown and self-isolate in their homes. That's really a measure of last, um, you know, last resort. The way we usually work is we have good tests, we deploy them, and then every time someone presents a symptom, and if there's a lot of asymptomatic, then you do it for, for large groups of people. You test them, and every time someone is positive, you then trace that individual case and trace their contacts. And it's the case and the contacts that then are quarantined. They are isolated in a obviously humane, respectful way uh, with respect to all their liberties, but they are isolated. But it's a small group of the cases and their contacts. What happened here is because at the beginning, when there were just a few cases, we didn't have the test. It's such a rapidly contagious disease, that was one of the characteristics I mentioned at the beginning, that by the time we started detecting those cases, the disease was already entrenched in what's called community transmission. Once you get there, it's no longer possible to trace each individual case. You still need to be diagnosing because you need to treat those people and you need to isolate their cases, their contacts, sorry, even if they don't have symptoms. But you're already now only looking at the tip of the iceberg. And, and that's when you need these very draconian measures, uh, the stay-at-home orders. As we start to reopen the economy, the key thing is going to have, to have enough of those tests so that people going back, for example, to our campus, we, we, we need to test everyone as they come back and then at regular intervals. We've already made uh, adaptations so that as soon as any student or faculty or staff would test positive, we have dedicated space to isolate them and their contacts. That has to happen in every industry. Uh, you know, that, uh, I mean, not that every industry will do it. But, but we need to have enough tests in our public health departments to actually allow companies to go back online and be testing constantly so that we then limit the quarantine to the, to the cases and their contacts and we don't have to go back to this um, wholesale, across the board, stay-at-home orders. So that's a great segue to talk about the conversation that's happening not only in South Florida, but across Florida and the country, and that is reopening. 
And in many cases, that focuses on the economy, which for the last eight weeks has really been dormant and in a free fall. And so from a chamber perspective, you can imagine that uh, there's a lot of conversations about what industries can open now. We're a bit exempted out of the original order from the governor, but we're already seeing challenges across our state and other places where people aren't masking, they're not being physically distant, and they're doing exactly what we said don't do uh, to avoid maybe a second recurrence. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear what you're doing. I think you can be great role models for our business community. Um, but people want to know when the students, faculty and staff are going to return. How does the fall term look for you? Uh, so our current plan, and of course we have our contingency plans for other scenarios, there's still uncertainty. But our current plan is to open on campus and on, on time in the fall, around the middle of, um, of, of August. Um, but I have said that that plan stands in four on four pillars, and I think this applies to all the industries that are members of the chamber who, who may be listening today. The first is testing. I just explained why. So that by through testing, and it has to be periodic. It's not just one off because you know you may test negative today, but then catch the virus later. Uh, that that requires a, a huge ramp up in the testing capability. I'm seeing a lot of progress. We still have a few months. In our case, I know some of you want to reopen much much sooner, but but the key is to have enough testing capability that whenever someone is positive, you can isolate that person and his or her contacts and, and not the rest of, of, of people. And do you, Second, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you envision that being at home for most people still, they would then go back into sort of what we did initially, the 14-day self-isolation? That may not be as easy on your campus, but... No, yeah, then you isolate at, at, at home. In the case, uh, you know, some countries where, where it's very hard because of the conditions of the home to protect uh, uh, people who are at particular high risk, there are shelters, again, very well conditioned, hotel rooms that are paid for by the local authorities to isolate the case, particularly the cases, and, and uh, the contacts are being observed constantly to make sure they don't the contacts have been tested. Those contacts that are negative go back home, but anyone that's positive, especially in, in places where, you know, more vulnerable socioeconomic groups where it's very hard to keep people at home and where you may have an elderly person or someone who's immunosuppressed or with a chronic condition for those people, you need to have separate uh, uh, accommodations in typically in hotel rooms. So that's the testing. The second is the, tra the tracking. The third element is separation. So for us, uh, uh, the, we are right now, I mean, we've been in, we have a task force just concentrated on rethinking and redesigning all our spaces and all our processes of work. Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible. We're not going to go back to the world of pre-COVID. It's, it has to be a different one. And in some, in some aspects, it, it will be better. In others, it's going to be challenging. But from the way we check in students, obviously, we need to space accommodation. We need to lower the density to keep that physical distancing. Now, we were incredibly lucky. And this, I have to tell you, no one planned it like that. This was just good luck. But as, as all of you who live here, We've been for the last uh, more than two years building this beautiful new residential hall called yeah. Lakeside Village. It finished on time, literally now as we speak, we're just the finishing touches. But that was only phase one of our, of our housing plan. Phase two was to take, as all of you know, who, who been on the campus, we have four towers emblematic on the other side of, of the lake. They date from the 1960s. So phase two was to take with the swing space created by the new, by Lakeside Village, we would take out, we would take down, we would demolish two of the towers now, build a second residential facility, and then demolish the last two. And all of that was scheduled to finish by Centennial in 2025. What we have done is we stopped the demolition. We suspended the demolition. Right. We're not demolishing anything. 
We're not going to have a full housing plan ready by 2025, but that really is secondary. What it means is that just the timing allowed us to now have the new facility finished and ready to go, and we didn't demolish the old ones. So suddenly we find ourselves with quite a bit of, um, of beds, and we're going to be able to space the students much better. Then we're redesigning the dining halls, like any of you who's in the restaurant business, you know, um, different schedules. We, we can't have, uh, you know, separation among tables. I mean, it's a total redesign of the dining halls. Um, we, we're most likely going to play athletics. We are planning as soon as we'll play, but we will probably have empty stadiums at least until the end of the calendar year. Um, but we will we'll still be able to play, hopefully. Uh, so we're redesigning all of those spaces. Even things that look like trivial, like uh, right now there's a bunching of courses around noon because a lot of people like to eat lunch at the same time. We're going to spread them. We're going to look at how, for very large classes, can we um, uh, offer you know, part of the class online. If it's a two-day-a-week, one of the sessions is online and you only have in the room half of the class. And then you switch, you know, those are on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's, it's a very creative exercise to try to reduce the density in residential halls, in dining halls, in classrooms, and in events of all kinds. We're not going to be back to having, you know, groups of more than uh, 20 people uh, in, in, at any time. So that, that means rethinking the way we, we, we live. We, we are convinced that even with those constraints, we will be able to provide a, a, a spectacular college experience, a very rich college experience. And, you know, the one thing I was saying at the beginning, because we do function a lot like an anchor uh, enterprise, the, the sooner we can get back on business, the better. This is here on the Coral Gables campus, on the Marine campus. If you go to the medical campus, we are now, fortunately there, we are now back to uh, dealing with our, with our uh, so-called elective procedures, many of which stop being elective as time passed. You know, you have a cancer surgery. There's just so much you can wait for. There's a suspicious, suspicion that you may have a, a, a breast cancer. You can only delay the mammogram for, for a, a limited amount. So we're now reopening. It's a gradual ramp up. We're not going to, to 100. We're going to go very, 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 uh, in a very cautious way. Again, it's a total redesign, uh, personal protective equipment for, for, for us, for, 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 for the health workers, protective measures. So this is what we're doing. Uh, the, the thing here, um, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and for the reopening of the campus, I forgot the fourth pillar. So testing, tracing, separation. The fourth is called vaccination. And again, I think this is going to be relevant for, for other sectors. I'm not talking about the vaccine for coronavirus. It's, not, it's very unlikely that it will be ready for the fall. It's very likely we will have a second wave in the fall. So what, what vaccine do we have? We have the influenza vaccine. Because just as we are going to be entering the regular season of flu, which we have every year, we may very well have a second wave of coronavirus. And we've never had a season of flu with this particular coronavirus. So what we need to do this year, it was always important, but this year is absolutely vital, is have everyone get their flu shots. Because even if we don't have the vaccine against the coronavirus, you don't want to be sick with influenza while the coronavirus is there. And also, we need to make sure that all of those people who would be in hospital beds are not in hospital beds for influenza because they got their flu shots. And we have those hospital beds for for COVID-19 patients. So vaccination is the fourth, and we really need to ramp up. We are planning to make that a requirement for return to classes. We already do that for medical students and all our staff on the medical campus. We are uh, going to also make it a requirement for people in, in the Coral Gables and the Marine campus. So you need to have your flu shot, just like we ask our students to have other shots. This is now gonna be a requirement because we, what we can't afford is a flu season and the coronavirus reactivation uh, at the same time. And, and, um, and we just need to use that very valuable tool, which is already there. And uh, we just need to start. Um, so we've increased our, our usual order uh, for, for flu shots. I would encourage everyone to do the same and get ready to, to vaccinate everyone 
against the flu. We should have done that in regular years, but this is not a regular year, so it becomes even more important this time around. So you raise a good point, and that is the fact that employers, including the University of Miami, are going to be more engaged in their employees' day-to-day health. And, you know, we follow rules of HIPAA in our individual businesses, no matter the size. But it seems to me like the door is going to be opened a bit to be more candid in things like, you know, temperature checks and and, uh, requiring people to show proof of a vaccination, even if it's the flu shot. But should companies also be investing in PPE so that when folks come to work, they have access to, you know, certain types of equipment if they can't be as distant. I'm amazed at what you've already figured out. You know, I started my career in Miami as a residence coordinator at UM. And all I could think about is 400 students at Eaton College sharing bathrooms, hallways, and rooms that are 16 by 12. But you've got a great plan by keeping the towers uh, in play. So but think about that in terms of employee privacy. I've had a couple questions about that. Yeah, so uh, it's a great point. Um, Look, you know, I know this is a very difficult debate, but I think every every person who's who's a strong defender of civil liberties does understand that my freedom ends where I affect others. And when that effect is massive, and that's typically what happens with the epidemics, there are some restrictions that, that happen, and we tend to accept them. The mass majority of us tend to accept them. I, I am very disturbed by the scenes of people refusing to wear a mask. It's almost more like an ideological warfare. This is not about ideologies. This is not about big government. This is about communities protecting each other, members of a community protecting each other. Because you put everyone at risk if you refuse to comply with some basic public health measures. Um, That to me is, is, uh, I've been a little bit disconcerted and worried about that. Until now, I have to say the response of the community and still the response of 99% of people has been exemplary. I mean, the way in the US people have, have, have agreed to stay at home has just been amazing. I understand that some people have gotten impatient. I understand there's a lot of suffering because of job loss, etc. But we should not uh, do this in a in a um, in, in a careless way. We could be set back, and that would be bad for the economy, not just for the health of people. Now, th- that's one side of your question, Mark. The other side is the, the the tracking methodology. It is imperative, and it can be done that you do the tracking with full respect to privacy. And that has to be a a requirement uh, for any of those tests that are appearing and all the tracking apps that are being uh, uh, now introduced, which I think are going to be a huge aid in in helping us track the context and avoid major shutdown. Just as I was saying, isolate the the cases and their contacts. Um, So I think we have the technology so that all of that is carried with full respect to people's privacy. The other more intrusive elements like um, thermal scans uh, and, and that kind of measures, again, uh, you, you know, some of those uh, have a positive more of a psychological effect. People tend to say, take, t- take things more seriously. Um, but again, it can be done. So they are valuable. We're planning to install this on campus. And you just have, have to have a very strict a set of procedures and regulations to protect people's privacy, including obviously the fact that you know none of that information gets reused, it's destroyed, uh, you know, at, at the end of a short period of time. Just like we do with security cameras, we accept that reality because it's a very valuable tool to to deal with crime. Well, this is not unlike that, and we just need to have that kind of uh, serious uh, safeguards to protect privacy. 
So I appreciate that very much. And I think the folks on the uh, on the Zoominar today as well, because I had several questions, but we have a question from one of your board of trustee members, Anna Vega Milton, who's also a great member of our chamber and our community. She wants to talk a little bit about the economic impact, which is a great pivot point for us to kind of wrap up today. And that is we are a chamber of commerce, very engaged with our businesses. And you know, they have been suffering, but they also are suffering because the students aren't here. They're a huge segment of our consumer base. But she wants to talk about the makeup of the student body as you look into the fall and the subsequent time frame in the age of coronavirus, especially related to less international students, maybe more local and commuter students versus students that might come from other parts of the U.S., as you have seen in your typical student body. It's a great point. Um, and, um, and I'm going to end with good news <laughs> since it's the last question. And thank you, Anna, for that question it's very important and it's a, a, a treasured member of our of our board of trustees um, back then in January one of the first things we started doing is what happens well first of all we brought all the students back who were in study abroad the ones who were in Italy were very unhappy but a few weeks later they were thanking us uh, so we brought everyone back and uh, but we started creating those contingency plans for the fall. So, uh, and we realized we are likely, and we will, we will see a drop in international application. We already saw that. Um, we, uh, uh, most of the international students are staying. And so we are now making provisions so that in the summer when they would have normally gone to their home countries, they're just gonna have to stay because otherwise they are not assured that they will be able to fly back. So that's another thing. But what we did decide very consciously was to over-admit, to admit a larger number. We went to, I mean, the thing that's been very good for us, Mark, and for everyone is in the, in the five years I've been president, we have had the double-digit growth in the number of applications at UM. So we are getting more and more applications. It's, UM has become a, an attractive place for students to apply to. Um, so, so a, a very substantial growth in applications and the quality of our applicants is going up and up every year. So we were able to go into our wait list, which are still super good students, further down than we usually would just to protect ourselves. And the good news to, to leave you at least with some sense that, uh, that things are, are looking bright and, and not to say that we can let our guard down or to assume that there are not going to be bumps in the road ahead. There will be bumps. But uh, we monitor May the 1st is our very crucial deadline. That's the day when we get the number of deposits. Students that have applied have been admitted, but many of these students are so bright that they are admitted in many universities. So we see how many actually deposit. We were actually, we were expecting a drop. We were ahead of the numbers from last year. So that's a very good sign. Now, a lot of things can happen over the summer. This yes. is just a $500 deposit. Some of those students may not show up. I'm not saying we're out of the woods, but that first test, if we had had half of the deposits, I would probably be starting to really get very worried. I'm still worried. I'm still devoting my full energy to making sure we, we mitigate the economic impact. I think that will have a positive impact on our entire community. But at least that first milestone, we came out of that with, with great, a great response. And that is basis for, for optimism. That's great news. I had a conversation with one of your team members, Sarah Articona, who's a past chair of our chamber earlier in the week. And she was educating me on not only that good news, but things that go from what's called yield to drip and how all of that is uh, quantified. But it's not just you all, it's universities across the country. And I'm thinking of those that are in you know, more um, hot spot areas like we are in terms of our state, but not necessarily nationally. And so you're gonna have to continue to message uh, that as well. So I'm gonna ask one last question and that is, 
you have a lot on your plate, Mr. President. You're also the interim CEO of UHealth, a major player in our community, but a major partner. And you've talked a little bit about the roles that they're playing as academic medicine leads. Um, how are you managing it? How are you doing? I know you're going to be looking for a new CEO, but uh, I can only imagine the time you're giving to us, you're giving to so many other things. So I say thank you, but how are you holding up? <laughs> I'm good. I, you know, one of the, there's, there's some positive changes that happen. I think we're going to see changes now permanent in use of technology for education, for health. I mean, we, our telehealth capabilities just grew exponentially. It, it, a lot of patients are, especially for routine procedures, and increasingly the number of tests and other imaging that can be done, patients are happy because they stay at home, they don't need to go out, and they get as good a quality of care, and all the studies show that it's as good. Obviously, you're not gonna have open heart surgery by telehealth, but for routine testing, et cetera, it's, it's been a, a big thing, it's gonna stay with us. And the, the third is telework. I'm here, as you can see, in my, in my home office, and, um, and I'm working very long hours, uh, but, uh, but, but you know, much more productively. One thing that allowed me to liberate a lot of time is I'm, I'm not traveling. I'm <laughs> full-time here, and therefore I can do the two things. But my position as interim CEO is through the, it was meant to be for the duration of the um, acute crisis. So July 1st, we will be moving forward. Um, and, and I will still have a very central role. The, whoever is the CEO reports to me and to the board of UHealth. But I am ultimately responsible for what happens at UHealth. But, but these three months, I'm much more in the day-to-day -day operation, which was what was required. Um, and and uh, um, I'm, I can only say again, and now that we're celebrating nurses, this is Nurses uh, Week, uh, we have an extraordinary group of really heroes. I know it's been said and said, they truly are heroes, the people who are on the front lines. The nurses, I mentioned them first because they're, it's their week. And please take a moment to recognize a nurse, send them a message. They are really doing the, an amazing job. Uh, doctors, other, the vast array of health professionals who are on the front lines really are doing an amazing job. And I'm only privileged to be able to be orchestrating some of that work, but they are the ones who are really, really doing and, and, and the work itself. And, and making such an amazing difference in the lives of so many people. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That week began yesterday, and it couldn't be a more appropriate time to honor not only all of our nurses, but all of our frontline health workers. And many of those folks work directly with you. You are, um, you know, uh, from that field as well. And we've been the beneficiaries of your expertise today. I'm going to pivot to just a couple questions, Dr. Frank, and be cognizant of your time as we hit the top of the hour. Um, somebody asked that other countries are testing apps that use Bluetooth to sync contacts in terms of contact tracing. Um, you know, will the university potentially be involved in that or rolling that out with students, knowing how digitally connected our students in this generation is. Yeah, we, we have some advantages. This is a these are na native uh, digital natives. <laughs> um, all of our students are now in that cohort. We have a few older students, but the vast majority are like that. Uh, they are used to to the to you know connecting by by those means. It's also the age group that's least at risk. Um, the fact that we have them all together although represents a risk, that's why we need to de de reduce the density. It also means it's easier to locate them and, and, and isolate them if we need and then provide them with online substitute while they are 14 days out of general circulation. So we have some advantages, but we are going to be very mindful. We are now in active conversations now with several of the main developers, including a partnership of several universities um, that I'm, I've been working with other presidents on developing apps that actually would, would uh, adapt more to the university environment, uh, which is different, but also would have applications for other fields and that are very mindful of the need for, uh, for privacy, including you know, options like the one you just mentioned. Yeah, you talk about building a better normal. I assume all of those things come into congruence with what we've been talking about. Um, question that said, you know, in business, we shake hands. In, uh, in South Florida, we shake hands and we hug, and many times we kiss. Maybe it's an air kiss, but we do that. 
do you envision a time whenever that returns to business or even just a general sort of, you know, warmth and greetings? You know, uh, I, I don't think they're going to return in the near term, for sure, and even in the midterm. Uh, I think eventually they will come back because we humans crave contact. We have actually a researcher. I just spoke about our research on the, on the medical field, but we have researchers looking at all the sociological, anthropological, economics. I mean, our business school is very active on understanding the economic consequences. There's a researcher there in the psychology department that, that, that her field of research is, is the need for human touch. And um, we, we need that. I think in the interim, we need to figure out other ways of expression, expre- expressing affection and recognition. You know, the handshake actually started as, um, it was more for safety measures. It, it was a way you, you gave your right hand, the other gave his right hand or the right hand, it was typically a he, to show that none of you had a weapon. And um, it's also this universal peace sign, you're showing the palm of your hand, you, you, you show that you don't have a weapon. So uh, it evolved into something different, <clears throat> but I don't see us going back to handshaking in the near future or hugging or kissing, but we can figure out other ways of expression, expressing respect, of acknowledging that someone is there, of saying, uh, you know, I recognize you, I, 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 I feel positively for you, I love you. Um, but we will keep some of those practices, I think, for a while. Eventually, my suspicion is they'll come back because we have such a craving for, for that actual physical content. I hope so, too. The last question I have for you is about the arts community, and the university plays a central role in that, not only in Coral Gables, but in the students that you are preparing, both in music and theater. And Thank you to the Frost School for doing a wonderful liaison and program with our community every Monday and Wednesday. But I have heard that, you know, singing groups are going to struggle to be together for quite a time because, you know, close quarters and just, you know, the spit, if you will, that comes out of their mouths when singing and the fact that you talk about high contagion. But how do you see the the arts community evolving? And you're going to continue to prepare those students for the future, but they're such an integral part of the life of the university and you share it so joyously with the greater community. And uh, are we going to miss that for a while? Until we have a vaccine, um, and I'm very optimistic, you know, once we have a vaccine, this will be another seasonal, uh, depends if it behaves like influenza, we may have to get a shot every year, it may give longer term immunity, that's the kind of thing we, we're learning as we go. But all of this will, this particular disease will be controlled, then it's really up to us to make sure that we're better prepared for the next one, that we take every lesson that we've learned here including the need to have those platforms so that we don't have that early delay in testing that has been very, very harmful in the, for this particular one. But to your question, I mean, one of the amazing things, I mean, these are people who are created by definition. The creativity which with, with which they have been able to adapt, I was saying we, we need to go from, from predictability to adaptability. I mean, what, the, what our students and faculty on the, on the arts the performing arts on our museum, on the Lowe Museum, have been able to do, to bring and continue doing that in, in, in amazing ways. I mean, I think you, um, I mean, you've seen what the Frost School is doing of actually being able to put a concert with people in their homes. Yeah. And I mean, if you close your eyes and you just listen to the music, you would say that they are all together in one room. Um, it's flawless. Um, so, uh, so in the in the meantime, lots of creativity, adaptability. Some of those practices may stay with us. Um, I think in many fields like education, like arts, and performing arts, and so forth, we may be evolving to a hybrid reality, where you both continue to do the in-person, um, let's say, delivery of a class or a concert but you blend it with technologies that allow you to greatly expand the reach of whatever you're doing. And I think that's a very interesting future. We're working very much with mixed reality technologies. 
that would actually almost make it seem seamless transition between the digital world and the physical world, what's called digital, and a blending of those two. A lot of very interesting things. These are the opportunities that every crisis entails. So, but I, I again, I have great admiration for the creativity of our faculty and staff, how they maintain the arts uh, very vibrant during this day, especially now that people are staying at home and they have more time and more need for that uh, spirit lifting sort of experiences. Well, Mr. President, uh, that's a perfect place for us to end on a very high note. I want to commend you on your leadership, um, the fact that you have made yourself so readily available to talk to groups not only like ours, but I have enjoyed seeing you in the local state, national, international media. I think folks are very comforted by your words. They're measured in the sense of where we need to go and what we need to do. I also want to tell you, you keep your desk very neat, and I want to, I want to learn from you in terms of that. I am blocking the mess here. The what do you think? That's happening behind me, too. I'm like, I've got like things signed up and lined up so that I can hide that. But uh, That's my, my reading file. <laughs> Well, it's really been a great hour with you. I want you to know that our chamber and, of course, uh, our business community are looking very much forward to our continued partnership. You started with the commentary that we grew up together for 95 years, both the university and the chamber, and we have common leaders going back to George Merrick together. So there is an undeniable thread, and our DNA comes from much of the same place. So I'll let you say a final word, and again, just thank you to you, your team, Adriana, every Everybody has been so wonderful, Mr. President. No, thank you again, Mark, uh, and thank you to everyone who, who, who joined us. Um, we are, uh, and we consider ourselves a key part of this community. We are. We were there in the founding of Coral Gables. We will. We will be there uh, forever uh, with the city, and uh, at these very trying times, uh, we, please see the university as as a, as a resource. We are very proud of our partnership with, with the city and the chamber um, and, 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 and our entire community. So thank you for this opportunity. We, we really value and uh, I, I'm looking forward to our continued engagement. Thank you again, Mr. President. And in the chat, you should just know lots of appreciation for you, accolades, and then quite a few go canes. So we'll leave it there. And thank everybody for a great morning. Mr. President, be well, best to your family, and thank you for your leadership. We will sign off. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of TroBiz. And what a great opportunity to talk to an admired leader, Dr. Julio Frank. Dr. Frank was, uh, as you saw, quite candid, sharing his thoughts not only about challenges that the university has to change um, and and, uh, address head on, but also uh, there are 35,000 students, faculty, staff, employees. That's an enormous universe of uh, of folks to have to take care of. And I really want to really recognize his leadership and uh, thank him for... uh, for being the leader that he is. Um, you know, I think my final thought is, is that, you know, universities are not only research centers and uh, forward thinking in terms of uh, creative approaches to problems, uh, but they're great parts of our community. Uh, UM is in our front yard. We miss the students. They're great consumers. They shop and dine and take Ubers and spend a lot of time, you know, getting uh, pampered, if you will. And all of those uh, moments are no longer. And as we celebrate the class of 2020, they will never forget this moment, not only because of receiving their degrees, but receiving them in a way that was never ever contemplated when they started as freshmen four years ago. So hats off to the class of 2020, not only at UM, but all of our local universities, our high school students who will graduate in just a few uh, weeks as well. And you know what? Keep tuning in. We're so blessed to have great leaders in our community. And I count Dr. Julio Frank at the top of that list. Signing off from TroBiz, everybody. We'll see you on the next podcast.